get ahead of us, I think. The question I want you to hold most onto is, do you believe in miracles? And I want you to believe the answer is no. You can't because of where and when you live. You can say you do, but you don't live like you do. You don't act like you do. If you did, you would look very different than modern American people look. You would not ask, what should I do? You would ask, dear Lord, how should I better pray? There's, again, a lot we're going to look at in the conversion of St. Paul today and the text from our Lord about losing things and regaining things in the regeneration, whatever that means. By chance this week, there's no such thing, as a providential gift this week, I stumbled upon the story of Asa. Do you remember this guy? I didn't. Uh, this is in that uh, Kingstone comic book Bible that I told you I just fell in love with, okay? So, I, I mean, I just pull it open sometimes, and it's amazing what's in there. Asa. Asa was a good king. Asa kicked his grandmother out of his house because she worshipped Asherah. He tore down the high places. He did these marvelous things in God's name. Unbelievable. It's like a 20-year-old man as the son of a very wicked father. He reigns for 41 years, a full generation in Israel. And even though he has war on his northern border with northern Israel, so I should say Judah, he rules Judah, northern Israel is always at war with them. He nonetheless lives well. But then at the end of his life, some things happen. He gets a foot disease. He gets a foot disease. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a thing to you, but in ancient Israel, under the Old Covenant, you're not supposed to get these. If you've been faithful, you don't get these. Now, it doesn't say that he was unfaithful and he got the foot disease, but what did he do? He called doctors. He called doctors. And he died. And that's mostly what's recorded about him. That at the end of his life, he did not really well, believe as he could have believed. Asa will be with us in paradise. He's a good king. I want to be like Asa. I, I, I'm going to model my heart after that guy when he was young. To not fear in love. But I'm also going to learn from him. It's really easy to get it easy. And then once it's easy to think that when it's not easy, the answer is me. It's not that you can't go to a doctor. But why is that the first inkling and not the second? Should not prayer be everything we do? Now again, what does that mean? That's not so easy. But let's, let's get there by starting with the foundation. Do you believe in miracles? You want to, but it's hard because the world we live in doesn't. And the most they'll let you believe in is that if you pray, you might heal some internal illness and live longer on this dying rock. What prayer in Christianity is about is knowing that you don't want to live any longer on this dying rock just to be here. But to realize that because of what Christ has revealed in his resurrection, it's no longer just a dying rock. Will it die? Yes. Will it be burned? Yes. But is that all that it is? No. It is the beloved creation of God into which you, a regenerated Christian, have been left for multiple reasons that include everything from telling people what you believe, confessing who you think the Christ is, all the way down to, and I'll just use my personal example right now, this morning I took three minutes to pet our household rabbit. 
That might seem really trite, and it kind of is. But the fact is, that's a created animal with a breath, with a spirit, made by God. Will he be in paradise? I don't care. Right now, he was at my feet, and he was a little nervous. And I could make him not nervous. I know. i got to touch with that guy. I'll put him right on the ground. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm here for that rabbit. That's why God has me here in life. Right? You have your own of this everywhere all the time. And you can approach it like you're trying to hang on or you can approach it like it's okay if it all goes away because you know it's all going away. Now, Paul and his conversion experiences this in a way that none of us can really imagine either. This is a guy who is at the absolute future peak of his generation and his people, which at that point means his nation. He is the shoulder-tapped, probably going to be in charge guy. He's already in charge. And he is violently, that's such a light word, brutally, uh, without remorse. I want to say licentiously, but that makes it sound like drunkenness. It's not that, but he is. He's drunk with rage. And he believes that for his religion of the God of love of the Old Testament, who he confesses, merciful and kind and all these things, that to make that work, we better go get those people. We better go stop those people. What God has to say to Paul with regard to that will, again, I think, help you test your belief in miracles. It's verse 16 and what we read. We'll go through it verse by verse, but verse 16 is the one that ought to bother you. (laughs) It ought to bother you. When he says to Ananias, Jesus says to Ananias, you're going to go, you're going to talk to this guy because I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I tell you, I ain't much of a sales pitch, people. Come to my church and you will learn how much you must learn to suffer for your God. But that's Christianity. It really is. You must learn how much on a fallen planet you will suffer. And then learn that you're not going to stop it. And then learn that it doesn't matter because it's all fixed in the next life. And then learn that that regeneration has you able to change this life, not the heart. You're not going to stop being tempted. You're not going to stop fearing, but you are going to be able to act differently than the zombies, the world around you. And again, this is what Paul will discover, and he will do it in a way in which he gives up everything. already talked about how he never goes back to Jerusalem until he sneaks in kind of for an incognito meeting with Paul, or excuse me, with Peter and James, and he goes away again. He comes back for the council in Jerusalem. That's a good thing, but he has lost who he was. The change of his name from Saul to Paul may show that. It does show that in a certain way. But I would contest that it is unlikely that Paul was a name he took at or after his baptism. It is likely it is the name he used and was called by whenever he was out in Greek culture, especially since he was from Tarsus, a Roman citizen, incredibly well-educated and probably very wealthy. And so Paul would have been like his doing business as name amongst uh, the Goyim, the nations, those, those others who we don't even like them. And then Saul would have been his given name as a circumcised son of the tribe of Benjamin which he's very proud of, eighth day and all that. Uh, but then he leaves Saul behind. And he takes the Greek name because he shall be 
the apostle to the Greeks, the one who will go outside of Judaism and cause the stir about circumcision, which then takes place in the book of Acts. And in all of this, he has a lot of other stuff happening beyond being let down out of a wall in a basket to escape vicious murderers. He will, in fact, have rocks thrown at him until he is knocked out unconscious and on the ground. And the way that works back then is they still threw rocks at you when you were on the ground. They would keep going until you were bleeding and pummeled. The kids would get involved. This was their society. And he not only had seen it happen, he then had it happen. And he got up and he walked away. Did he rise from the dead? I I don't care. What he did was he kept preaching. He went back into the city. The people who killed him, he went back. There's this other time, it has always blown my mind about St. Paul, where he's in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's done all this work, shaved his head to try to not cause a problem. It doesn't matter. If people want to hate you for Jesus' sake, they're going to do it. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. As a result of him being there, this entire place explodes with like mob violence. They're ready to tear him limb from limb. This is hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people in these courts in the temple. And there happens to be, because this religion is so violent, Judaism, back then, because it was so violent, the Romans have a guardhouse built on the side of the temple, which is sacrilege, and yet they had to do it. Because these kinds of things could happen, and a mob very quickly can become an army, at least back then, less so these days. They send out a platoon, a group, a legion, whatever. Um, it's not a, not a legion. They send out a, a unit into the midst of this rioting mass, and they grab Paul. And you can again picture how this happens. They've got to surround him. They have their weapons. They put him up. They carry him out. They're about to take him into the barracks. And he said, hey, sir, the captain, whatever, what do you mean? Hey, sir, what are you talking about? I got you. I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, I'm a a member of this entire area, illustrious leader here. Can Can I address the crowd? They're going to kill you, sir. Are you sure? Yeah, please. And he does. And they still have to take him back into the barracks by the time the thing is over. What has always amazed me about that story is his vigor. He literally doesn't miss a blink. You slap him in the face, he's like, yeah. And it's not like he didn't know it happened. He always knows it happened. I've been uh, digging in my heart over a, a paper I heard about i didn't read it but a professor at one of our seminaries who i respect quite a bit wrote a paper about how anger is not a christian emotion and how righteous anger is something christians should be aware of i was bothered by it i was bothered by it and here's why you can't get rid of anger it can't not be there especially if you're a man i'm going to say if you're a man anger is part of the meaning of courage And the reason we have very few courageous men is because we don't know men who know how to use their anger righteously, which usually means not to act on it. So the problem is that you have anger and you act on it. That leads to unrighteousness. The anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. The Bible is very clear about this, a direct quote. However, what anger always is for the Christian man is the, the chance to exercise gentleness. In fact, I would contest you cannot exercise gentleness without anger. It's impossible because you have to stop the anger in order to be gentle. Otherwise, you're just kind of always going to be soft. And Paul does not exhort you to softness. He exhorts you to gentleness. And there is a difference. 
There is a difference, right? So Paul knew something about this. I'm, I'm convinced of it. He knew how to be angry and say, you know what? I'll take more of that. I'll take more of that. And I'll do it by smiling and being nice. Because, again, I'm going I'm to contest this, that gentleness is Christian anger. It's Christian anger. Huh? Gentleness is Christian anger. Now, don't take that to mean you should be more angry when you're gentle. No, no, no. I'm saying when you're angry, this is your chance. This is your chance to be gentle. All right, now that's a lot. We're going to dig into the text and see if this kind of bubbles up a little more. I've kind of prepped you for it. We've really dealt with Saul's position, threats, murder, wanting to drive the disciples out. And again, I said earlier, but for the sake of the internet, he has effectively ended congregating Christianity in Jerusalem. He has stopped that. The apostles are still meeting in smaller secret places, but, and they are going to the temple to preach. Uh, but Christians are leaving. Uh, they, they can't stay. It's just too bad. That's not enough for him, right? So he goes to the high priest. That would be their official authority. Their, forget president. They don't have a king. They'd like the king to come back. But their high priest is higher than anybody, even Caesar. Now he knows he can't do things against Caesar, but that doesn't mean he accepts that, right? This is important for you American Christians right now, by the way, across the spectrum. Whatever your government says, you have to live with it but it doesn't mean you have to believe it. And there's a major difference between those two things. There's a major difference, okay? So he goes to the high priest because he knows really who does he need to have on his side, his true government, which he believes is Judaism, not Rome. So he goes and he gets these letters to go to the synagogues at Damascus because the way the synagogue worked is that the pastors, so to speak, were more or less one or several elders older men who had grown up in the faith, who just were trusted to be the teachers of that place. They certainly would have received some remuneration from that, but money and paychecks and things, that's not how it worked, okay? But think of it as the pastors there, there's several of them, they're a little more part-time, but there's no such thing as part-time, first off in pastoral life and second off in the world. Everything's all the time, all the time in the world. You're just doing one thing part-time. These men who their whole life is caring for this group of people in this area, this other city, these people who want to be Jews, who want to believe in the Christ who will come. Well, to them are letters. Watch out for the way. Can't call them Christians. They're not called Christians yet. That'll happen in Antioch in a little while. But watch out for the way. What's the way? The resurrection of Jesus. He's got the papers. He's got men with him. They're going and they're expected. We learned this later, right? It confuses the leadership there when he shows up. We'll get to that. They go. They're on the way to Damascus. Damascus is a huge city. You would want to think of it a little bit as an international city, a port or trading city. It still is to this day a important geographic location because of whenever you have something on the coast with a good bay, right? The idea is that then the ships can come in and safely harbor and all that. So Damascus has been around a long time. The synagogue's established a long time. And he's going there expecting to be there a long time. And drive Christianity out just like he did from Jerusalem. But then, of course, of course, I mean, nobody expected this. Who could expect this? Do you believe in miracles? All right, so let's tangent here. Hmm. I'm trying to, I, there's like three arrows, and I wanna use them all on here. St. Paul and this moment in Damascus is your mic drop moment 
for a conversation about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and whether or not it actually happened. So if you want to get go into at length a conversation about how do we logically know that Jesus really rose from the dead and it's not some story made up by some people in the Middle Ages. What's the story that gets us all the way here that makes sense? The ones who want to argue against that, that Christianity is a new thing that just kind of showed up in the late three to four hundreds, five hundreds, because the Roman government was falling apart and they needed to make something up new to make it all work. Uh, See, those arguments, they don't believe in miracles. Just know that from the start. They don't believe in miracles. And so they're arguing on an assumption. They're not arguing based on logic. They're not arguing based on experience. They're arguing based on an assumption that nothing they don't understand or see can happen. That's their assumption. That is, again, the modern assumption. I'm going to say you have it too. And you cannot escape from it entirely. You can learn to find it. You can learn to see it when it's, oh gosh, I am thinking like a modern person. I'm assuming miracles don't happen. Try, you'll find it. But in this then, if you're going to talk to someone about their assumptions, about what happened in the past, about how Christianity magically showed up in the 300s, the answer is, how on earth do you explain the person named Saul of Tarsus? You, oh wise modern person who sees all and knows so much about the past because you have an iPhone, how do you explain this educated, elucidated, well-known, famous future leader of the world giving it all up and getting crucified? And he wasn't converted by anybody except for the guy, Jesus himself. That's his story. Oh, that was all made up in the Middle Ages. You haven't studied You haven't thought. And that's where it's got to be a mic drop for you. I really want St. Paul to get this in our heads. Don't argue with people about Christianity. Don't defend it. When they say this, that, this, that, don't defend it. We've been defending Christianity for a thousand years. It doesn't work. We need to offend people with Christianity. I don't mean be offensive like on your own. I mean simply say it. And then when they're offended, say, yeah, well, that's what I believe. Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, you're an idiot. Well, I disagree. I, I think you're unwise, I wouldn't call him an idiot, you're unwise to not recognize Jesus rose from the dead. It's obvious. What do you mean it's obvious? Well, I mean, I'll give you a book, you won't read it. (laughs) Paul remains nonetheless, though, this linchpin, because you can't explain him. You can't explain his mind, his heart, his change without Jesus showing up, risen from the dead, okay? So that's that's the one, one of the tangents. I said there were three of them. Let's see if I can remember the other two. Well, two was this idea that, so we have in the apologetic, the defense of the resurrection, leading from the empty tomb to the witnesses to the antagonist who converts, that you cannot explain how this happened without Jesus being risen somewhere in the middle of that. You have to know that that argument will not convince anybody ever to be a Christian. Not a single time, not once. All it does is make you as a Christian feel better that you can be a modern person now. It makes you feel better that you can believe in logical stories as opposed to miraculous stories. It makes you feel better that you can believe that the resurrection is a really happened thing rather than a miracle story, I'm not sure happened thing, right? And if you can't tie all the newspaper pieces together, oh my gosh, how do we know? Oh, it's maybe all wrong. Now, what I'm here to say is not you should feel ashamed. I'm here to say you can't help having that inner monologue because the world around us is always telling you you have to. And until you 
silence some of that honestly, and or build for yourself a daily repertoire of reminding yourself why you're not like them. The Psalms are good for this. Proverbs are good for this. Well, then you're just going to continue having their questions attack you when their questions are irrational. The question about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is irrational itself. If you want the book, it's called Did the Resurrection Happen? It's an interview between two men. Uh, um, Tony, uh, sorry, Anthony Flew and Gary Habermas. That was Gary I was looking for. Gary Habermas is a professor of philosophy and apologetics. Anthony Flew is the most famous atheist you've never heard of. Because of the internet and things like that, there are some famous atheists these days. Sam Harris is one of the most famous ones that's out there. But long before Sam Harris, when Sam Harris was reading a textbook in college, the guy's name on the cover was Anthony Flew. Okay? So in this conversation with this guy, in which they talk about things like the history of the New Testament, was Jesus a person? Was Jesus really crucified? Was there an empty tomb? Did the apostles really preach in Jerusalem? They go back and forth in this conversation, and Anthony Flew, four leading atheists and historian of the last century, says, oh yeah, all those things are true. Empty tomb, apostles convert, James the brother of the Lord converts after the case. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who he calls an exquisite mind, he converts. Oh yeah, he converts. Why? I don't know, he says. It doesn't make sense. You should read it. But it should also tell you all you need to know about arguing about Christianity. It'll be true and that they will think it will not make sense. It'll be in front of their face, bright as daylight, two plus two equals four. And they'll think, it doesn't make sense. Why? Assumptions. What's his assumption? Miracles don't happen. That's his assumption. Nothing that we have not seen happen before can happen now. That's his assumption. And so people don't rise from the dead. It can't be. Well, there's a lot of things I thought couldn't be before this year. I believed in the resurrection then, I believe in it now. I do not believe in it because of the argument I just made. I believe in it because it happened. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that's just a fact. And if you don't want to believe that, you're resisting, well, the almighty power of the Holy Spirit of God trying to convert you. Now, I don't think anyone here is doing that, but you know we are online. And I expect people to want to argue about me saying, let's not defend Christianity anymore. I think that's a pretty bold thing to say, but I really would like us as a congregation to put our foot on it. I don't want you to defend it. I want you to be ready to say what it is and then leave it. And more than that, I want you to think about how you could offend people with it, not by going up and saying to some trans whatever, how I can think you're bad and blah, blah. No, 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 no. Now, what I mean is how can you go on offense with your faith? How can you not be about what am I going to do so that it doesn't, and instead be about these words that I've discovered that give me life. How can I speak them more? I realized recently how often I quote movies. I, I used to love movies. I don't as much anymore. Long story. But I, I still quote them a lot. They come out of my mouth as like phrases. And it's not that that's bad, but I, I realized like part of it was a game to see you know, if you could quote a movie. I know people do that. Um, but part of it was also just like, oh, that made sense. I'll say it right there. And what I, I realized is like, look how I've been trained to talk. Look at how my mouth has been formed for me by someone who is not me. I'm a Christian. Why am I letting the Philistines teach me how to think? 
Now, again, what does this mean for you right now? It means we're all on a journey in which our minds are constantly under assault from the devil. And that the, the, the trick he wants us to play is thinking we're on defense, like straight up. He wants you to believe you need to justify yourself. That's a defense action. You got to justify your church. That's a defense action. You got to justify your country. That's a defense action. And what Christianity says is there's no defense. You are on offense now. Go, get beat up, get destroyed, get killed. You're going to rise from the dead a hundredfold. It's hard to believe, right? Because we don't believe in miracles. And I don't want to chide you with this. I want to inspire you with this. Let's, let's go back to Paul then. So there's so much here. I know he, the, the light, we went off on miracles, right? The light flashes. He gets knocked on the ground. Nobody really knows what's going on, but in his head he has this conversation where Jesus calls him by his name. But don't go too fast past the end of verse 4. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus has ascended into heaven, reigning at the right hand of the Father. How is he being persecuted by Paul? Now, this should be comfort to you if you you put it together. Every single Christian, Jesus sees as himself. So every single one of them who is being hurt by this tyrant, Jesus is like, (laughs) and eventually he said, no more, no more. I won't let you do this to me. In fact, I'm going to make you join me. And again, there's a lot more to what that means, but Jesus has a personal investment in your every fortune. And though you might call them better or worse, he calls them all better because they're all moving you forward toward where he wants you to be, which isn't this world. Do you believe it? Yeah, you do. But how much? You could believe it more, couldn't you now? Yeah? Why are you persecuting me? He says, notice the difference between him and Ananias. I call your name. I'm God. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord, Samuel, Isaiah, Saul, who are you? He's so confused. And he knows that much at least, right? But he also calls him Lord. Now, he doesn't say Jesus. He doesn't know that yet. But by saying Lord as a Jew, he knows in his heart that this is his God. He doesn't think this is a demonic encounter. He has no reason to think that. He simply knows this is his God. Now, I guess you could, if you want to be the person who argues against Christianity, you could say Paul was converted by demons. That could be an argument. I could could see that actually working. However, atheists can't make that argument, unfortunately, for them. See, there's a fourth option, guys. Just found it for you. Um, Anyway, uh, we're not going to do apologetics, so we'll let that fly. Uh, Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus. So, Each Christian is Christ, and then when they are persecuted, Christ feels it, and that is who God is, is this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, this one man born of Mary. Now, again, I think we could circle around that a lot, but the the revelation that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus is why the Psalms are so important. And while I continue to tell you that we need to be in them, And you should consider saying the name Jesus Christ out loud instead of the word Lord in English, in all caps. Because this is the heart of Christian prayer. It's the definition of it. I'll come back to that more here. But I am Jesus, he says. The God of the Old Testament is Jesus. Verse 6, but you, 
Rise, he'll say that to both men. Rise, which is a bit of a pun, resurrection. Rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Yeah, sit still. We have really not done ourselves a favor by treating Jesus kind of like a, uh, it's more like a salesman than a king, right? Like, like he says, do this, don't do that. Here's the Bible, this and that. And we're like, yeah, but, yeah, but, well, what about this? And maybe we can move it over here. That's very cavalier. The old world, if a king said, do this, you, you did it. And you did it glad you weren't killed because kings back then, that's what they did is they just did what they wanted. And we forget that that's who God is. He's a God who does what he wants. Now, thankfully, what he wants is good. That's what he says. He's the only God there is. He says, it's good. And we're like, no, it's not. <laughs> well, tells you where we are. Yeah. Uh, but you will be told what you are to do. When the revelation of God is given to you, it is not one to be interpreted, countered, played with. It's to be taken with all seriousness and held on to. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. No one knows what's going on. He gets up. His eyes are open, but he can't see. They take him by the hand. They lead him into Damascus. What a thing. He was going there as like a would-be king to destroy. Now he's being led by the hand of blind man. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now this shows you, Paul, I mean, he might have been a persecutor of the church and a rank unbelieving Jew in that regard. But he wasn't an inauthentic person. He knew as soon as this happened, he'd done something wrong. I made my God angry. I know what that means. That means wrath. That means what I deserve is... Well, to be left here blind and then burn, I suppose. What do you do if you find yourself in that moment? When you, you really find yourself believing that your God has abandoned you, where do you go? Now, it says later. And when Ananias is arguing about whether he should go talk to Paul. Let me see if I can find it for you. Ah, there it is. Verse 11. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is, he is praying for three days in utter darkness, neither food nor water, but he is, he is praying. Now again, for us American-influenced Christians, that means something like piously imagining things, talking to God in your head, dreamily wondering about life, or even having anxiety and saying that I don't really pray much. I just do it in my head. But you have a lot of anxiety. See, you're praying to false gods, by the way, at that point. But it, it happens. <laughs> um, for the Jewish mind of the old world, prayer did not mean what you wanted to think about in God's sight. Prayer meant the Psalms. There's really no other thing. It just was the Psalms. That's what they prayed. They did it every time they prayed. They memorized them. They sang them in Hebrew. So I get this picture now of Paul. And I, and I, I want to, every week I'm doing this with these characters for you. I'm imagining, what was it like? I'm trying to figure it out so I can share with you. you know, he goes and he says, he's got to be a broken man. I can't imagine how confused he is, how lost he is. But he finds his way to what he knows his God has said. 
to him. The Psalms. Promises that are prayers. Prayers that will not disappoint you. Particularly when you throw the name Jesus Christ in, you'll learn what kind of God you really have. I recently discovered or rediscovered Psalm 119. And what I want to share with you about it is a way you can try to find it yourself. It's a hard one to get to know because it is long. 170 some odd verses. Uh, the reason for that is that in Hebrew, it is a work of utter beauty because every eight lines begin with the same letter. So eight lines for the letter Aleph, eight lines for the letter Beth, eight lines for the letter Gimel. It's the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the whole Hebrew alphabet with these, what we would call like same starting letter. Uh, we even have an English poetry term escaping me for that, but um, alliteration, there it is. Uh, the same starting letter all the way down the poem, and then it breaks. And that in English, you can't possibly translate that and make it do that in English. It's impossible. And so no matter what we do, we have this excessively long psalm that is also uh, not really coming across with the beauty that it has. But I was done with ignoring it recently. And so I, I decided I'm going to just pray eight of the verses, just eight of them, um, once a day, once every three days. I don't care. Like when I'm working and I'm like, I don't feel like I know what to do next and I don't want to do what I know what I should do next or whatever. I need an excuse. I'm going to do eight verses of Psalm 119. And I started doing it. And because I'm a pastor who has the ability, I opened my Hebrew Bible and I read verse one in Hebrew. And then I didn't know what it meant. And I, then I read it uh, in, in, in English. I did both out loud. And what I found in the Hebrew blew me away because suddenly I could hear David. I could hear David out on the steps fleeing from Saul or standing as king in repentance, not knowing what to do. I could hear this man confessing that no matter what, his God and his God's word will be the answer. So this has become like my favorite thing now, uh, although like all things in the Bible, I hate it. So I'm sitting there and I don't want to do something. I think, oh, I could go read eight verses in Psalm 119, and my flesh says immediately, oh, you better do the work then. I stay away from that Bible at all costs, because miracles don't happen. See, if, if you believe miracles happen, you just pray the Psalms like as often as you could all day, because you would know that would make a great life show up eventually for everybody, not just you. But we don't believe that will work. You can't just sit there. Huh? Where, where's that written in the Bible? You ever get that one? It's not written in the Bible that you can't just sit there and have God save you or give you or do for you. Now, you can be an unbeliever and try to test God. Yeah, that'll work out real well. Go ahead. But what I'm really saying, though, is, again, why don't you as a believer trust God? So Psalm 119, that's the way I'm getting in to having a prayer that I don't have to make up, come up with, or even understand, but know it's going to put into me what Christ has already promised I will be. Finding a way to do that for yourself is one of the most important things you can do. So that if you're ever in a house blinded by God, lying on the ground without food and water, you know what to say. So as that's going on, this guy Ananias, we don't know much more about him, but he gets this vision. I should talk about that, visions. What is the place 
of visions and miracles here at St. Paul Lutheran Church in terms of, well, again, not the miracles of praying and knowing God will send answers through history to us, but the miracle of you're going to have some scales fall off your face, right? That kind of thing. Um, the place of that is this. It's very simple. The entire Old Covenant was a supernatural reality with supernatural promises. Asa should never have gotten a foot disease, and if he'd prayed about it, it would have been taken away. That's the promise they had. We don't have that in the same way anymore. Uh, but as that transition to a not Old Covenant reality fulfilled in Jesus Christ and done, all coming on the last day, now yours by faith alone, be washed into it and eat it in a miracle that you have to see, but just believe in, because you can't really see it except as bread and wine, in the overlap time period to stamp that Jesus has certainly achieved what had been said, there was an inundation of prophecy and miracle and apostolic blessing upon that first century crew. Again, as a sign that the Old Testament was over. Now I can take you through an hour-long Bible study and show you where I get this from 1 Corinthians and from Zechariah and a bunch of other things like that. But that's what it is. The miracles were to show Jesus is the Old Testament God, and that is done now. Old wineskins. New wineskins? Go into all nations, baptizing and teaching. That's it right there, yeah? Word and, and sacrament. So a vision to Ananias? Not unexpected and very normal at this time. The Lord was very active amongst his church directly, immediately, as opposed to now he is active as his church. We don't want to deny that. You search for visions, it means you're denying what the scriptures have said. You're saying it's not enough. And that's what's been left for us. Even so. So here is Jesus being engaged right away at that time to end the Old Covenant, sending this guy Ananias to Straight Street, you know, think like Main Way or something, right? Um, and uh, the house of a man named Judas for this guy from Tarsus, a very big Roman center, again, a, an elite area. He's praying. He has seen you, Ananias. He, he knows you're going to come. You're going to heal him. Right? It says, lay his hands on him, he may regain his sight. Now, Ananias, I, I can't blame him, although if, if I'd like to think that I could learn from him. Yeah? Which is that if God said to me, go do this to this great enemy of yours, who will believe you, and actually it'll be great, not say, but. but Ananias is going to say, but. And he's just checking, making sure Jesus, Lord of the universe, got the memo. The, the, that... This man has evil that he has done in Jerusalem and that he has authority in Damascus to bind Ananias. So just making sure you know, right? Um, again, I mentioned earlier, there's a little Jonah overlap. And the biggest part of it is, is just this. Do you remember the end of Jonah? Forget the fish for a moment. Just what happens at the end? There's another miracle. The fish is a miracle. And then there's another miracle. It's a plant. You remember the miraculous plant? Jonah preaches, they repent, he goes up, he sits down, it's really hot, but God makes the plants grow so he can sit under the, under the thing. And he sits under it and he still pouts. He stares down at the city and he pouts about it. And so God kills the plant. And he's like, ah, now you did that too. Notice he's a believer this whole time. He's not an unbeliever, he's just a jerk. <laughs> uh, Why did you do that too? And he said, you're mad, this is God's answer, you're mad about the plant. But you want me to not be mad, meaning change the hearts of all these people rather than destroy them, and all their cows. Last word in the book. 
and all their cows, their cattle. Um, what we've got to learn from this is that God hates destroying stuff. He loves the cows. He loves the plants. He loves the rocks. He loves you more because you were made in his image and bought in his image by his image made flesh, Jesus. He loves you more. Jonah's lesson is, again, God loves more than the fallen man even as a Christian. God's patience to convert the unbeliever is far greater than the Christian's. The Christian says they don't deserve it. That's what Jonah said of them. That's what Ananias says of him. And even his fear, if it is fear, is based upon him judging Paul. He can't be converted. Which then is a judgment on who? Jesus. Because conversion is the work of Jesus. Now that, and that gets us to what is told to Ananias next. Yeah. Go, verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. A chosen instrument. That word in the Greek is ek logos. Ek logos. If you want to spell it in English, it would be E-K-L-O-G-O-S. Ek logos. Um, not O-S, A-S. Um, so, but you can hear something even better than it, though. Eklages elect. Can you hear that? Eklages elect or election. It's the same word. It's the same word. So here you have God saying of St. Paul to Athanasius or to Ananias that I have elected this evil man. Now think about that. Think about what an election is for us. We just did one, although yada, yada. But you go, and there's like a choice, and you choose, and that's what you chose. And in that election, there's a lot of us, and so the and other things. Ah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sorry for the distraction. The, the election of God has one voter. Has one voter. God. He chooses. He elects. Now, he does this of Paul here, but that is not the only one he does it to. The fact is that every Christian is a Christian because they have been eklagist. They have been elected. They have been chosen. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, and I told you I was going to go dig into the book of Concord where we have some stuff about election, being chosen, what it means to have a will versus, say, a free will and those kinds of ideas. I didn't get very far because I started looking up all the Bible verses, but I did want to share with you a little bit of what I did find in the early section on election. So this is in the Formula of Concord, Article 11, concerning God's eternal election and foreknowledge in the Book of Concord, which I am oath-bound to teach to you according to the Scriptures. So as Scriptures teach, this is my judge, okay? Um, so, on election... What you need to know right and foremost to, to learn and, and not have it be a thing you fear is that election is not something about damnation. You just have to believe that. God chooses to save, not to damn. You just have to believe that. And the reason you don't want to believe that has to do a little bit with this. I mean, the math thing is one thing. You want to know why some, not others. But you also have to be able to, or to help with that. You want to pull apart these two ideas. There is a difference between foreknowledge 
and for action planning that does something. And the election of God is not just foreknowledge. It is a choice from eternity in time. But God does have foreknowledge of all things, including the evil. So he also is moving and managing all the things, including the evil, which he did not create in order to elect you. Because from before the foundation of the world, that's what he wanted to do. So distinguish between God knowing about what's going to happen next and God's decision to choose you. They're different ideas. And then know that his decision to choose you is bigger than him knowing what's going to happen next to the level that what's going to happen next will always serve him choosing you. See that? That whatever happens next, whatever he saw for coming, he was able to say, woof, woof, and it all bent back inwards into saving you and you and you and me in Christ. Hmm? I think that was pretty clear. It is a hopeful thing that the preordaining adoption of you by God is something you don't get to have a say in insofar as it's being given to you. Now, somebody who wants to be a skeptic and an arguer will say, but what about those people who fall away? Like, well, that's a different conversation. We can talk about that. We're talking about conversion, not deconversion, not apostasy. Those who fall away have been converted just like this. They've believed in the election of God. God is choosing them, and they hardened their hearts against him. And I cannot explain that. I can only tell you that it's possible, and it happens when you decide not to pray anymore. I can tell you that. Uh, but let's leave that for another time. Let's focus on conversion today, which, again, we know the only one who converts, the only one who elects is Jesus. Now, away from St. Paul and in your life, this is so important now. Do you have a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a sister, an extended family member, a friend, a co-worker who doesn't believe in Jesus? Do you have conversations with them ever and you're bothered by it because they don't believe in Jesus? Do you start to feel like there's got to be something you can do to help them because you know you love them and you want them to believe in Jesus? Well, that's all fine, but you need to know that you can do nothing. Nothing. It's between God and them. God has elected them to salvation in Christ, and that's a fact, no matter who they are, and some will not believe it. And that's a fact, no matter who they are. So you stop thinking you're going to get in a muddle with that. And instead rejoice that you know who Jesus is. That against your own reason and strength, you have been converted by him. Rejoice, you're elect. Hold it now, grasp it tight, yes. Which as again, we'll see Paul, Paul will do. Ah, I'm taking a lot of our time here. Moving forward, verse 13, a chosen instrument that will suffer. So part of election is going to be not escaping the suffering of this age. It's a lot more like learning how to deal with it. I'll just kind of give you my own most recent way of thinking about this. It's like I didn't realize how much I was suffering until I stopped to think about it. And to realize how much I was trying not to suffer. And then to realize how much of my suffering I was causing by trying not to suffer. I sound like a Buddhist now. This is, this is where they're right. They'll go this direction with it. But there certainly was something there. The attempt to escape suffering created more suffering. Now, what Jesus tells us is not 
what the Buddhists will say, don't want anything and you won't suffer. It's a nice mind trick. It certainly works in this age. But what Jesus tells us is the suffering's good for you. Suffer. Suffer for his name rather than for your own attempt not to suffer, and you'll find you might even. It's not like you'll like it, but you feel stronger when it's over. And that's a different feeling. I will say that. Hmm. So Ananias goes, he does it, he lays his hands on him. Brother Saul, <laughs> love that. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you by the road has sent me. You may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and these scales fall from his eyes. Do you believe in miracles? Strange, I got no explanation for it. I mean, clearly it's like metaphorically, he couldn't see and now he can. Like, okay, but uh, I don't know. Did, <laughs> is it like when you lose your teeth and you keep it in a jar? I mean, I, I don't know what, what happens next. In any case, what happens next is he gets baptized. It's right there. He got up, he was baptized immediately. Did Ananias tell him about baptism? That's possible, but I don't think so. I think Paul's been around. So Paul knows that the Jews have their own baptism for Gentile converts, full body or pouring, both work, Gentile converts to become God-fearers. That's part of it. He knows that John the Baptist has been around baptizing all these Jews, and he wasn't supposed to be doing that. And he definitely knows these Christians are getting baptized on Pentecost. That's why he wants to get them all killed or kicked out of town. So he doesn't even have to be told. He just gets up and does it. They baptize me. Wash me in Jesus, he says. Yeah. And he takes food. He's strengthened. And then he goes, he goes to church, right? Straight into church. And because they know who he is, you know, you can imagine the leaders are sitting there waiting for him to start talking about, you know, how he's going to do all this stuff and blah, blah. And we're going to cut down on this. and We're going to stop this. And instead he starts saying, Jesus Christ is the son of God. I'll show you in the scriptures. Old Testament. I'll show you. Here we go. Let's pray the Psalms together. It's about the son of man. And it confounds them. They're amazed. They don't even know what to do. But he increases more and more and more and preaches. And as the story goes on to tell us, again, he will have to escape. Simply, for no other reason than saying that Jesus is risen and the Old Testament says this, he will have to escape from the city lest he be brutally murdered. For me, that puts this last year in perspective. It's been hard. I've had a lot of fears have been sure about what things mean, who to trust. Will my church be a safe place? Will my church be a Christian place? Will they still want me to preach? I mean, these have been things I've wondered about this year. Can we sustain ourselves? Will we survive? In perspective, besides St. Paul, they're stupid questions. They're modern questions. You know why they built cathedrals when they did? It's because they believed that that altar would be there until Jesus came back. And so they figured they'd put some stone around it. Why do we not build cathedrals now? We're modern people. We believe Jesus is coming back. We just act like we don't. Huh? Now I'm here to say you are forgiven. And that very few of us in this modern world, maybe zero, have even thought this way for a long time. I think we are going to be forerunners. I think we are going to step outside of the buzzing, hezzy, fast and fast. You're still going to live in it. You're still going to engage it. It's like diving into a war. But you're going to come out again. You're going to wait a minute. There are a lot of things they assume are true that I don't have to assume. And life's just a lot better when you have a God. And in the name of Jesus, amen.